Osiris. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I am Zach Goody, and I am the new lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Yes, we're doing a back patio taping. If you hear jets, birds, crows, dogs, <laughs> multiple dogs, uh, it's because we're uh, out in the elements. I actually love taping like this because it feels a little less like precious you know you can kind of there's a nice little spot hang back here it's our little jungle so obviously you know much of the music listening world is familiar with smash mouth in some way you know all-star is pumped into our ears whether we want it or not (laughs) half the time Uh, but i think people forget um how just really cool some of their tracks were, especially in the late 90s, Astro Lounge, I wore that out when I was probably about 14, you know? Yeah. And re-listening to some of those songs, it reminded me about how much I loved bands that I think are criminally underrated, like Cake sure. is another band that can kind of be sequestered into like, oh yeah, they're sort of like joke rock, yeah. or like, you know, uh-huh. this sort of not fully critically serious uh, pop rock and roll songwriting and it's like well yeah but there's a reason why it did so well I think what happens with a lot of those bands is just they have such big hits that people don't really dig except the actual fans who had the album the the general radio listening public didn't dig deeper and you know you get yeah you know having a having a smash hit is obviously a blessing and a curse you know because the success of all-star and I'm a believer um, and the whole Shrek thing is just you know it just pays dividends, you know, for 30 years because people know those songs. And they, they always will know the songs. They come to the shows and they sing them. But also you're seen as, you're seen as a one-hit wonder, even though there's, you know, five or six or seven hits. But there's a lot of uh, stereotyping. I think a lot of bands get that, that have that huge hit. And, um, it's you know, once, you, once you've reached the pinnacle, it's hard to top that. So you're, st- you're always being compared to that one huge hit or two huge hits, you know. Well, it's always 
crazy reading the histories of these bands and seeing the major labels drop a band like Smash Mouth immediately after they don't have like a platinum record. It's like, well, this record only did in a gold status. Goodbye. Yeah. (laughs) Like they would kill for that now. Seriously. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. I know we just, uh, all star actually just went triple platinum. Um, and I got, they gave me, they sent me a, 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 like, you know, the, the plaque in the mail, even though I didn't sing on it, but, uh, it was pretty cool because I guess at the time that that song was actually never released as a single. Mm. Um, so the album sold like 10 million copies, but the single was never actually platinum. So because of streaming now and all that stuff, uh, it's now officially triple platinum. So <laughs> it's kind of cool. Like what? 20 something years later. Somebody once told me the world is going to roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. So the band obviously uh, formed almost 30 years ago now, yeah, 94, exactly. around San Jose. Um, how much of the history did you have to kind of steep yourself in before you dove into this kind of crazy role as the frontman of this band that people have an emotional, historical connection to? And you guys are playing yeah. 20,000 people crowds in South America, all over the world, and all of a sudden you're put into this spotlight. Um, what was that like? Well, the last Mexican show actually was like 75,000 people. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. It was this festival with the crazy. Killers and Billie Eilish and 21 Pilots, and uh, it's, it's nuts, yeah. Um, I learned a lot. I mean, I got kind of a crash course in their history. I wasn't real hip. I was kind of, I was in a band in the 90s around the same time as those guys, a little earlier actually, um, called Ghoulspoon. That was my band in San Diego. So I kind of had a parallel story as theirs. I was in the SoCal music scene. Um, similar kind of band. We were more heavy, you know, but it was like, you know, the same way they had punk and ska and reggae and different elements. We also had different elements. So we were, I kind of knew, we even played uh, in San Jose and like knew who they were. Um, so the difference was they had Walking on the Sun, which you know became a number one smash. And uh, th- I guess they were buddies with Carson Daly because he's from San-, San Jose as well. So when he got the job at K-Rock, he played that song and then it became number one and they got the record deal and all kinds of stuff because... Um, what I, what I learned was that that album, the first album, Fresh Mang, um, they made on their own with Eric Valentine without a label. So, so when they got signed, they had a finished, done album with a number one song on it, done. So usually it takes... That'll work. Yeah, usually it takes months and months and months to develop and record an album. They had a done album in the can by Eric Valentine, who did Third Eye Blind, same year. Um, and so they were like, they hit the ground running, you know, so... Uh, it's really an incredible story. Like, I, I wasn't there for it, but I've heard through uh, the manager tell the stories about how they had the bidding war, and like, I guess Paul, the bass player, thought that they were like they were done because he was he was a little bit older, and they put the album out, nothing happened. They had the hit, and uh, he went like on a surfing trip to Big Sur, and like kind of you know back then no cell phones, and uh, he came you know he came back, and they're trying to get a hold of him, like hey we got a record deal for like you know millions of dollars, and it was this crazy story. So, yeah, man, they they hit it out of the park on that one. Um, and then they avoided the one-hit wonder curse by having the second album be even bigger with with All Star and uh, I'm a believer. So that's that's really what cemented it, you know. Oh, no. 
look at it, that cover of Fush Yu Mang, I had that on cassette. Yeah, sounds right. And I would put it in my six CD changer boombox. And, you know, when you're, what, 11, 12? Like, these, these are the, the first albums you buy on your own. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I'm a little older, so the first albums I bought on my own were, you know, different. But uh. but I but I literally had as part of my you know first record collection, sure. like the Beatles, REM, you know, Alanis Morissette or something, stuff yeah. like that, Smash Mouth, sure. And it was like part of your listening repertoire, and I think that I could hear the '60s kind of psychedelic yeah. um, rock and roll happening. But there's that that organ that kind of is a through line through a lot of it. Mike Clooster. Yeah, man. It just feels like, you know, the animals. Sure. The zombies. Zombies. For sure. They well, they they were one of the first bands, I don't know if the first, but maybe the most prominent to sort of embrace that whole kind of retro exotica lounge kind yeah. of thing that was happening, which I was also super into since uh, maybe 91 when I discovered those research books and started collecting like, you know, Martin Denny albums and all yeah. that stuff. Um, Esquivel and all that stuff was very so they kind of took that to the mainstream um, and there there were other bands doing it I guess there was you know some other like kind of one hit wonders that did it but they were I guess Beck would have been a good example um, of that kind of like pastiche of producing um, that kind of 60s throwback samples and things so yeah sonically those those first couple albums are just beautiful like you go I, I went back and listened to them and I didn't know how good they were you know and um, how great the songwriting was too but also you know, during that time, obviously, a lot of people were listening to ska music, punk music, and then those certain bands like No Doubt, Green sure. Day, were sort of transitioning into a more mainstream yeah. sound. You could say Smash Mouth did the same yeah. thing, right? A lot of those records, um, like the first song was at Flow, I think, of that. Yeah. It's like, that's just a straight up ska punk song. Well, the first their first hit was called Nervous in the Alley, yeah. and that was like a local hit in San Jose. Um, and that's on the first album and it's, it's just straight up just like fast punk ska yeah. it's great so it just sounds like, a, like an offspring song or something and uh, it's a banger you know she's 15 and she's leaving home living on the streets but she don't feel alone daddy's always gone and mommy's on the sauce living in a mansion it's easy to get lost she's going to a place where they understand baby on the way away we play it live now and yeah, there was a couple songs like that in the first few albums, and then they sort of, I guess, you know, wrote some stuff that it took off. So, it you know, which is good because the punk ska thing kind of f- faded a bit, I'd say, from the mainstream. Like it was huge for a minute, and then kind of now it's back, of course, like everything. Yeah. Like, do people who have been listening to Smash Mouth from the beginning still view the band as like a ska adjacent band? I don't know. I mean, I, I do see comments. People like you know people that, that, that request the old songs and want to hear the punk ska stuff, you know, and there's, whoa, that was, <laughs> someone just skated out. Um, I feel like definitely people want to hear the old stuff. Um, cause I, 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 the story that you just told about your, you know, having that album is I've heard that story, you know, a hundred, every single show people are yeah. like, oh, I have my first album, my first concert, my, you know, it's uh it's, it's generational too. Cause you have to, you have to realize that, um, when Shrek came out, there's, there's, there's babies being born now whose parents weren't born when Shrek came out. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Then the Morning Comes is one of my favorite songs from that era. Yeah, that's I my mean, favorite. That's it's probably just my favorite song a of theirs. banger, and it's great lyrics. It's, you know, there's obviously this sort of element of 
the rap rock aesthetic, but like bare naked ladies yeah. vibe, like where you're just spitting a lot of rhymes, and yeah. you have to keep up. Yeah, no, it's, it's it, awesome. it, was, it was definitely a challenge to learn all those. I mean, I had to learn about thirty songs. Um, and so I just learned them because <laughs> I'm a singer and I've done, you know, uh, that's what I do. But um, it was definitely challenging. I mean, Greg wrote some of the wordplay he uses is incredible. And he's also a songwriter who has a lot of third and fourth verses, which you don't see in a lot of bands. So it's like you think you're done and then there's a fourth verse, you know. Um, he's a very complete songwriter. So all these songs tell these stories and uh, they resolve. You know, it's not just like ambiguous. It's like if you're writing a song about you know, a car, it's like it tells the whole story from start to finish and wraps it up. It's like very well written. So it was it was definitely a challenge to learn these songs, but now it's kind of in my psyche. I think there's an interesting irony to some of the covers that the band became known for. Yeah. Obviously, um, I'm a believer, but you know, just rediscovered that why can't, why can't we, we be, be friends? friends the yeah. war cover, and these are like bands, in a way, in, similar to Smash Mouth in that they, like, do people view the Monkees as a serious band? But they have great songs. Well, that's because yeah. that's because Neil Diamond wrote them, <laughs> right? But it's like uh, the, these bands that can kind of like be cast aside as like, oh, War did you know Lowrider? It's like kind yeah. of just like a throwaway kind trivial song, song yeah. except that these songs are being played 40, 50 years later all the time. But yeah, the covers, "Why Can't We Be Friends" is still huge. I'm a believer, obviously, is huge. Um, the first song that we released with me on vocals last year is "Never Going to Give You Up," so that's sort of like kind of moved into the permanent set list like everyone knows the song even if they didn't know that we covered it yet right. so that's like another banger that's like a must it's almost it's like another hit already just because people know it that is kind of a lost art um the band or the artist that would service these other songs and almost elevate the songs to another level right and i think it, it's important that some of these songs be rescued in a way from the discount bins of history the where are they now file um yeah, well, I mean, I, I love covers. I mean, I've been in a million cover bands. I, I Covers are just fun for me. Like, I, I love the ones that change it, you know, the Joe Cockers that do the yeah. their own style. But I also love just, like, you know, when Faith No More does easy and they do it basically straight, you know, and it's just, like, fun. Um, 80s covers are just, I love 80s covers. I could do that all day long, <laughs> you know? Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story 
is the best song. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. can't get enough of you baby uh my wife was mentioning that song is like just one of those things that was always in one of your playlists or one of your mixtapes it's a cover too yeah it's and like the, the it, funny thing about that song which i didn't classic. know it, well it's a cover of q and the mysterians question mark and the mysterians um which i always thought it was because that's the kind of version they do but what i didn't realize is that um the four seasons did it originally huh it's a frankie valley uh song and they also didn't write it. <laughs> so it's like a cover of a cover of a cover of a cover. Let's ask the internet <laughs> who wrote it. I just looked it up the other day and I can't remember. Uh, can't is it Burt Bacharach? When you put it in, Smash Mouth comes up first, see? Yeah. Uh, Danny Rendell and Sandy Linzer recorded first by the Four Seasons. Sandy Linzer. Yeah, I wonder who, what was But the... a lot of people don't know that's a cover. Um, yeah, that's one of those songs that's just like it's, it's definitely taken a life of its own with Smash Mouth for sure. We usually open the show with it, um, just come out swinging. I can't get enough of you, baby. I can't get enough of you, baby. Yes, it's true. Yeah, Sandy Linzer wrote some some classics. Working my way back to you. Oh, babe. that's the best one. That's the Four Seasons too. <clears throat> so, how does one get, get into Smash <laughs> this job? Obviously, we know uh, a little bit. You know, it was in the public eye, which was a bit, you know, ugly. How? Yeah. Um, the band shakeup happened. We all went a little crazy in 2020. <laughs> uh, you know, Steve Harwell had a bit of a volatility factor, uh-huh. it seems. So, um, so I hear. Um, it's hard for people to associate the band without him. And yet, you've sort of filled in pretty seamlessly, it seems. Surprisingly, yeah. It has been really um, well-received. Um, I mean, to be honest, I really expected a lot more pushback um, from the fans and they've been just awesome. Um, you know, I think maybe part of it is because, you know, I'm a six foot dude with tattoos and I'm, you know, I, I like if you're, if you're squinting your eyes in the back row, maybe people, people might not know there's a new singer, you know, maybe half the crowd doesn't even know. I don't know. Um, but I've had tons and tons of interaction with, you know, the fans obviously the last year. And I mean, the, everyone, I mean, there's, there's always the random comment of, you know, the one person who's like, Steve, you know, <laughs> they make the one comment on the YouTube video, Steve. I'm like, okay, there's always that guy. But I expected a lot of those guys. And people have been just super sweet. Um, they seem to like what I'm doing. Um, but uh, to answer your question, how do I get the gig? I just auditioned. You know, I, I, saw, I saw an ad. Um, and I was, you know, I've been in bands for years and years and years. And I was doing other stuff. And I was just kind of saw the ad looking for a singer. And I was, I was like, hey, give it a shot. And, they, you know, they probably won't even respond. And so I just wrote them a little email and sent them a link to my YouTube 
And uh, they responded pretty quickly. And they're just like, yeah, this is great. Can you send an audition of, you know, singing all, Walking on the Sun? And I did that. And they liked that. And so I did All Star and kind of progressed from there and then went to San Jose and met the guys to see if we clicked. And it turns out that um, we actually have a lot in common. Uh, you know, a lot of similar influences with the, the punk scene and New Wave and, well, you know, Devo and Pixies and, you know, all these bands that we have in common that we're influenced by. So we, we kind of vibed on like a, just like a bro level. I jammed with Paul a little bit, the bass player, and then kind of went to the next round of auditions and it went to the final four. Um, and I went up there and did like six songs with them and it went great. And um, then got the call and they offered me the gig and um, kind of just progressed from there. I, I kind of had a couple months to, we had a few practices, not many, like we practiced twice, basically two, like three days blocks twice. Um, and it was all, because those guys are all pros. I mean, when they're not in Smash Mouth, they're doing session work, they're touring with other people. They're, mm-hmm. Those guys are busy, and they're all you know, 20, 30-year veterans. Um, so I just stepped in, and I, I just did my homework, and I just practiced you know, every day. I, I sang the set by myself in my studio, you know, on a microphone, through the PA, cranked loud, pretending I was playing a show, and did that for like a month, you know, 30 songs. So I had it down when I got there. Um, because I'm, I'm good at, like, I, I have kind of a theater background, so I grew up, you know, reading scripts and memorizing lines and monologues and doing plays and musicals, and then I do a lot of, like, voiceover work for commercials, so it's like I'm used to reading copy and um, things like that, so I just kind of clicked. It was it was, it was was hard, but it was, you know, I know I have a process, and, um, yeah, by the time our first gig came around, like, a, and almost a year ago now, it was, uh, the first gig was Guadalajara, Mexico, um, at the Corona Capital Festival, and it was, like... I don't know, 30, 40, 50,000 people. No, for sure. <laughs> and I just walked out on stage and, you know, uh, it went great. It was, you know, I was stone cold sober and 50,000 people and come out with Can't Get Enough of Your Baby. Uh, that was my first time ever seeing with in-ears. So that was, that was you know, ultimate, that, that, was, that was cool. Um, and it was great. Yeah, people got amazing footage of that show. You could look it up on YouTube. But there's some guy, this guy had this drone and he got this amazing drone footage of just like... How many people you think their debut show is that many people. That's like pretty impossible. I don't know. know. (laughs) But it's like, it's, it's, it's just like, everyone's like, were you nervous? Were you nervous? And I'm like, no, I wasn't nervous. Like I've been waiting 30 years for this. I've been preparing. If I was ready for like, this is, this is what we do. Right. I mean, it's like the bigger the crowd, the better. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's almost, it's almost harder to play an acoustic set in like, you know, McCabe's guitar shop or something, you know, and have like your, your, your mom looking at you, you know, as opposed to 50,000 Mexican super fans, you know, singing every word. Um, so it was, it was great. It was, it was like, it just, I just fit right in and it was like, people loved it. Like it was so much fun. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was, I don't know how many other people have done that. Maybe like, you know, Van Halen or ACDC, like major bands that replace their singers. I don't know, but. <laughs> Didn't that, that guy replace the dude in Journey who's like from the Philippines or something? Arnell. Yeah. He's amazing. He's great. I don't know what his first show was, but, yeah. but they had other, they had another Steve after Steve Perry left, they had the other Steve for a couple years, so he was, the, I think, the third singer. Um, but that was actually one of my motivations, because I saw them play with the new singer at the Hollywood Bowl a couple years ago. I'd never seen Journey before. I'm not, like, a super fan, but, I, you know, like the, the hits are guilty pleasures, whatever. They're, you know, classic bands, and um, they were amazing. He was, like, put on a great show. He sounded incredible. The fans loved him. And then I watched that documentary, and, and uh, you know, they have lots of new fans, because the whole Filipino-Asian contingent, like, they gained all this whole new fan base, and so that was kind of like my motivation. I'm like, you know what? People love Steve Perry, but 
A lot of people like Arnell too. Well, know? the songs <laughs> eventually have a life of their own. Yeah, for sure. Right? I mean, yeah. They are bigger than you. They're 100%. bigger than the band. They are sort of entities of the human spirit or something. Well, we're seeing yeah. that now with all these bands who are down to one or two original members or no original members. Yeah. Um, and they can, you know, I mean, honestly, a band like Smash Mouth or Journey or whoever could replace all their members and tour forever because the songs do have a life of their own. Um, you know, I mean, look at bands that you never, like, you know, Sublime. You're like, that. Bradley was Sublime, but they replaced him and people love him, you know? Um, Stone Temple Pilots are out there. Alice in Chains are out there. You know, all these bands um, have done it successfully. Um, so yeah, the, the songs just continue to live on, and new generations of people just keep showing up and and just being. You know, they they weren't alive or they didn't have the chance to see them or haven't seen them for years. So to experience that live is you know it happens every weekend. We play somewhere new and people are there. They show up. Maybe uh, later when my daughter gets home from daycare, I'll play the. Smash Mouth cover of I Want to Be Like You from Jungle Book. One of my favorites from the Disney catalog. Wait, I need to learn There's that this one. list of, of covers that Smash Mouth did at one point. It's pretty long. I haven't seen it. Read, read a couple of them. Uh, there's Under Pressure. I've, I've House of Pain's one. Jump Around. That's That's been in the discussion lately to do as an encore, so we'll probably um, bring that one back. You, you make a good point about, I think, having a theater background, which I also do, because I think people don't realize like that part of your brain that is just storing all this data. Yeah. You know, because there's probably a hundred songs that we could sing at any one point, but you're not like sitting there at home writing it down or being like, okay, I have to memorize this. It's like this muscle memory that keeps it, this sponge. But at a certain point, you do have to learn all this stuff. You had to learn it on a fast track basis, which is hard. But yeah, like when I used to be in like Shakespeare shows in college, which I loved... I had this little um, basement studio that my dad had for his voiceover work because my dad's a voiceover oh, really? guy. And I would record my cues onto, like, the cassette recorder yeah. in his little studio with the timing of, like, the gap that I would then right, yeah, yeah. speak back to sure. myself. Yep. And then I would walk around with my, you know, Walkman. Yeah. And you know, be doing Titus Andronicus, you sure. know, walking down the I would, street. I would, I would do that stuff too, man. I would. I mean, I, I started in um, about. I hadn't done theater in years, like since high school. And about ten years ago, my friend who runs a theater company um, in Provincetown, where I, I grew up in this really artistic community in Cape Cod and New York City, back and forth. But uh, she asked if I wanted to be in Rent, the play Rent, and I, I didn't know anything about Rent at all. I just, I just, for some reason, just kind of that whole phenomenon kind of passed me by. So I looked it up and I'm like, oh, it's about an aging rock star who wants to have like one more hit before he dies. I'm like, that sounds like it's right up my alley. So I happened to be in Hong Kong for three weeks and I learned the entire play back to front by myself. I just studied it nonstop. I was, it was Roger, the, star, the, the lead, you know, one of the lead, the co-lead. Um, so I learned the whole play and then we went and, and we did the play and we, we had a week of rehearsals in New York and it was all like SAG a- actors, like pros, like just talented people. Um, and then we did the play in Provincetown and it was the first time I had done theater in maybe 20 years and it was like, you know, that feeling right before the curtain goes up, it's like nervous, but stoked that you prepared and you know your shit. And it's like, then, and then it all, and then you pull it off and it goes great. And you're just like, that was the boat. That's, that's the feeling I had before the curtain opened at, in Guadalajara for the first Smash Mouth show. It's like healthy nerves because fi- you know, you're prepared. You well, know? everyone has, you know, who's done theater or, you know, any sort of acting has those actors nightmare, um, oh, for you sure. know, dreams, I haven't done probably a full scripted show in 
over 10 years, I still have those really? dreams. Uh, I yeah. never, ever have the dreams about singing, which is interesting. The singing you know? singing in your band? Like, I never have the, like, oh, God, I don't remember the lyrics. Right. I've but, had a couple of those, you know, but it's understandable because the situation I'm in now is like I had to learn a bunch of stuff yeah. suddenly in the last year. But yeah, I, I've, we've all had that dream. I mean, that's just the worst. Not being prepared is the worst feeling. I, f- I feel like in a way, if you've done <laughs> a monologue from Edward Albee's Zoo Story, which I did, Ooh. which is ten pages. I don't know that one, but he's a yeah, he's a the dog speech, which is that's probably my all time favorite play. I did that in high school. I learned ten pages of a monologue. Wow. Right. And you're like, if you can learn that, three chord, three verses in a chorus right, or yeah. two, not that bad. Yeah, walking on the sun isn't that hard compared to. But there's times. <laughs> do you still get nervous every now and again? Like, do you, do you do you have any stage fright for this band? Yeah, not. I, I honestly don't. Um, I look forward to it, which is really weird because when I was doing this sort of like I was doing like some tribute bands here and there. Um, before Smash Mouth, like just to kind of like, you know, extra money, extra fun. I, would, I, I was doing a Yacht Rock thing. I was doing a, um, an 80s thing. And I would get nervous for those shows because there was, um, you know, first of all, you're singing two or three sets, which is, you right. know, when you're a rock musician, you're used to playing for 45 minutes or an hour, but to play for two hours is, you know, that's the only thing that I would get nervous about, like just to make sure my voice held up and I knock on wood, haven't had any issues. Um, but yeah, things like, because the Yacht Rock thing is like you have to sing Hollow Notes and Journey and Steely Dan. And some of that stuff is, the range is high um, and technically complicated. So I, I would get a little nervous during that, but um, only right before the first song. Well, once, once you're playing, it's like you, you fit right in. It's, it's fine. And you find that most people are there rooting for you. You know what I mean? People aren't looking to see you fail. You know, they they want to see you do well. And then I saw your face. Now I'm a believer. Well, there he goes, Zach Goody, the brand new frontman of Smash Mouth. Yeah, I can't imagine having my first ever show with a band being in front of 40, 50, 60,000 people in Mexico. Uh, you're hearing actually a little bit of that concert right now. Uh, them doing the Monkees cover, I'm a Believer, from the Corona Capital, Guadalajara, Mexico. It's nuts. You got to check out this video on YouTube. And, uh, you know, Zach is living a dream that maybe he didn't even realize that he had, but he is out there every night in front of tens of thousands of folks, and uh, he's singing his heart out. Now, say what you want about the group Smash Mouth. Uh, They have songs that uh, go into your eardrums and uh, start to destroy your brain a little bit. But that's kind of what great music does. Maybe it's not beloved or respected in its own time, but if you listen to Astro Lounge, man, there are some... There are some truly great songs, uh, both instrumentally, lyrically, and sonically, that uh, I think should be reappreciated and loved a whole lot more. Uh, we're going to come back next week and talk to Zach about his upbringing, how he got into music, and his journey into this bizarre uh, situation where he goes out, as you're hearing, in front of 50,000 fans and sings Smash Mouth as his job. And uh, as always, The Show on the Road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Z Lupitan, and we are part of the Osiris 
Podcast Network. We have some cool episodes coming up in the uh, following weeks, including my talk with German pop icons Milky Chance. And also, I just talked today with Bill Payne of Little Feet, the amazing group from the 70s and 80s that uh, put out a lot of the music that inspired me and my band Dust Bowl Revival today. Uh, and Dust Bowl Revival will be heading to Europe. Yes, we're playing the UK and Denmark in August, and then playing Rhode Island, and then up in Northern California at the end of September. So check it out, DustBowlRevival.com. Stay safe, stay creative, and we'll see you on the train. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.